we're trying to not only change our businesses, but we're trying to change the larger societal parameters. And the only way to do that, in my opinion and experience, is you can't grow your business without growing yourself. host and Emily Ken. And before we start with today's show, please remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. Flip Brown is the author of Balanced Effectiveness at Work, how to enjoy the fruits of your labor without driving yourself nuts. And he has an extensive experience over five different major careers, business, no-profit management, psychology, teaching, and coaching. Plus, he also incorporates in his work his experience as a craftsman, musician, and gardener, so a true Renaissance man. And he has the philosophy that business should be a force for good. And his company is a certified B Corp that focuses on the triple bottom line, profits, people, and planet. And it's my pleasure to have you here today for this conversation. Thank you so much for being here, Flip. Oh, thank you, Anna. It's my pleasure. And I, I really love your book and I really recommend and I will put in the show notes because I think you came up with a very easy format for consuming important information. And I love how you have so many prompts of self-reflection and tips, things that, and I love the stories that you have there that illustrate your points. But here today, I would like to focus on one of your articles that I really absolutely love, that is the art of supportive confrontation. And I want to start with the question of what is that of the art of supportive confrontation? Well, thanks, Anna. And I'll give you a little background. I grew up in the Midwest of the United States, where conflict avoidance is a, is a widely held belief and practice. And in my own family, we just didn't talk about the difficult stuff. So I entered business and life without a good set of tools and used to think that the best relationships were conflict-free relationships, but of course, that's not realistic. So for most people, when they hear the word confrontation, they automatically assume that it's a negative. However, one of the dictionary definitions of to confront is to present you with information. I could let you know that you just won the lottery and you would not be upset with me. So supportive confrontation is when we bring information forward that is something about our shared values or beliefs, but our experiences that something is out of alignment. So Anna, if you and I were working together and for example, I kept interrupting you during meetings, would I want to know that I'm doing that if I'm not aware of it? The answer of course is yes. And then you would use this technique of supportive confrontation to bring that to my attention so I would have the opportunity to see it, um, change it, and then sustain that new way of interacting with you. And I love the 
redefinition definition of confront of confrontation that is the presenting of information how can this be helpful and you also in the book say about confront as deal with something in a honest and direct way uh, so I think if we see it from that angle, it's like changing our mindset, our definition of the word, then we are more open to confrontation in a positive way if it's supportive. The, mm-hmm. the importance of having the term supportive there and because there has to be a, a share of principles and values and missions that establish as the base, correct? Yes. And I think almost all of us grew up with this idea of, well, don't say or do things that will make people look or feel bad. And of course, this is one of the most inaccurate phrases in the English language. You know, she made me or he made me feel this way. No one can make us feel anything. We just have our own natural emotions and our reactions. So part of supportive confrontation is learning how to check in with your own emotions, uh, how to focus on the value or principle at hand, and then how to find the courage to take an appropriate risk. And you add the word art there because this is not a science, correct? Yes. And what typically happens is when we're in one of these situations where we know that we need to initiate what we believe will be a difficult conversation, the typical methodology is to come up with all our logical and rational reasons why our point of view is in fact the correct one. The problem with that is that we're asking someone else to completely accept our version of reality. And that's actually an invitation for them to convince us, no, 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 uh, you, you have it all wrong. My version of reality is the correct one, and that's how arguments start. So we we cannot plan these out in advance uh, totally because there's an unfolding to the process that must be respected. And also, I presume that is the levels of communication. If we think that is a rational kind of argument or a uh, is the question, my argument is best better than yours. And, and uh, we have to realize a lot of the feel, the other layers in the communications that are in play. Yes, I heard a saying, no one changes their mind unless or until they feel understood. And so another part of supportive confrontation, particularly when I work with teams and groups, is the there's actually an art of receiving because... It's fascinating how we put filters in place when someone is giving us this information that they genuinely want to be helpful to us. But if we get emotionally triggered or defensive, we will almost always distort the meaning of what they're trying to communicate to us. And to be able to recognize that our emotions are being activated and then to really try to focus just on what was being said. And then the last part of that is we need to sometimes remind ourselves that in virtually all cases, the person we're interacting with has positive intent. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they truly have evil intent, we should <laughs> we should leave. <laughs> but um, they're they're wanting to be helpful. They may not be extremely skillful in that. And we may not be extremely skillful in our ability to receive it, but that's a great opportunity for both of us. And I like that point that you are making. We have to uh, the presupposition that there is a positive intent there, that the intentions are good, 
or for the better good and the triggers, the emotional triggers that we have to be aware as individuals and uh, in relationship with others. How? Because I think that will be one of the secrets of success of the art of supportive confrontations, helping people also to be aware of their own triggers and be able to not to press the pause button, not just react to the triggers. Yes, because if we respond with a negative emotional um, content, then we're actually inviting the other person to do the same, as opposed to particularly if what we're hearing is difficult for us. And sometimes it's that it's what I would call disconfirming information. I remember at one point um, early in my career, someone gave me the feedback that they thought I was a poor listener. And, you know, I immediately wanted to get defensive. And, and you know, the voice in my head said, are you kidding me? I, I've studied this stuff in college. But they were actually trying to tell me that they didn't feel connected to me. But that was the only language that they could find. And so I had to really stop and just say, wait a minute, um, what is the message here? I'm not I'm not receiving it clearly, so I need to ask for further clarification. So tell me an example that what is the situation or uh, the reasons, typical reasons why an organization brings you in to help them with the the art of supportive confrontation? Well, that's a great question because there can be a number of reasons. One is the disconnect between what we would call the espoused values and the actual observed behaviors. And a classic example is if you ask people in the workplace, do you want to be treated with trust and respect? Everyone, unless they're really cynical, will say yes. But when I ask folks, what are the specific behaviors that give you the experience of trust and respect? That's a much more difficult question uh, to answer. And so given that people also come to the workplace and to their jobs with the hope of being seen and heard and to have a sense of belonging. And some of that is realistic, but some of it may not be. Because if we're bringing unmet emotional needs from, let's say, you know, our, our family of origin, uh, that can really create a confusing, mixed-up situation. So part of the art of supportive confrontation in an organization is to be able to talk about what truly matters and to be able to separate what I call the emotional conversation, which we have to have sometimes, from the business conversation. But when those are mushed or fused together, it becomes a lot more difficult to have clear, effective communication. One of my mentors have this beautiful quote that I truly, I think is so resonates a lot with me, is that uh, most business problems our personal problems in this guys. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so this is from Michael Porth. And um, I think it's th- that is sometimes uh, a lot uh, from s- micro businesses to bigger businesses of all sizes. We sometimes we forget that we are dealing with human beings. Yes. And one of my favorite co- quotes, and it certainly applies to me, is that I'm successful because of my personality but I'm also successful in spite of my personality. And I think that touch a really important point that mainly for the B Corp movement that is so, they know that their their people, their workforce, that includes their workforce is one of their biggest assets and they want to take care of it. 
And at the same time, it can be a big issue and big challenge and a big problem. <laughs> and uh, there is that dichotomy that I, I think sometimes they feel they don't know how to deal with it, correct? Well, yes. And I think what's unique about uh, the B Corp community, I'm also a member of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility. There's some other uh, progressive business organizations, is that you know, this concept is we want to bring our whole selves to work. And actually, that's not completely accurate because, you know, if I want to have a beer at two o'clock, uh, I should leave that part of my whole self <laughs> at, at home. Um, but what, what I interpret that to mean is that we want to have a reasonable level of authenticity with each other. And so this ability to talk about what matters and to have what uh, what I've called creative conflict. I actually had a client hire me one time because they heard me use that phrase and they said, we actually have no idea what that looks like. And in their case, it wasn't toxic conflict, it was conflict avoidance. And uh, in the B Corp community, we need to be talking about racial justice, climate change activism, a durable and prosperous economy for all. So we're trying to not only change our businesses, but we're trying to change the larger societal parameters. And the only way to do that, in my opinion and experience, is you can't grow your business without growing yourself. Absolutely agree with that. And uh, when is the organization of company growing the people that all people that are involved in all levels there? And, and because I, I presume that even when um, I can imagine that a company hires somebody because they are extremely creative and the high potential, uh, and then when they don't fit certain norms in the companies, almost like dating that the qualities that initially attract a couple to each other then becomes their worst enemies afterwards. Do you find that dynamic also happen? Well, I think that people, almost all of us, start a new job with hope. Um, and it's almost like the parallel of starting a romantic relationship. We hope that this person is going to partner with us on a path to health and wholeness. However, there almost always has to be just enough dysfunctional that's familiar. And, and so I think that's also true in the workplace in terms of, you know, we want this sense of belonging, we want meaning and fulfillment, but there are no perfect businesses. There are no perfect human beings. At least I haven't met any yet. <laughs> and so there is, it is inevitable that we're going to uh, run into the differences, uh, the different experiences, expectations, assumptions, uh, styles, personalities. And each one of those is an opportunity to learn more about ourselves and learn more about what it really means to interact and engage with other humans in the workplace with some level of empathy and compassion, but also with some level of efficiency and effectiveness. And that balance changes from, from day to day, from situation to situation. And at the beginning, it's almost like uh, everything is roses. So we see the best in both sides and loads of high expectations that I think is wonderful. And then the issue is that when the other side starts to emerge, that is always there, but in the beginning is not as visible. If uh, the oh 
this is not working 100%, let me give up, let me try another thing. If they don't learn that, what you're calling the uh, uh, the creative, seeing the conflict uh, as an opportunity and be creative in that space, uh, then they just move on to something else and they don't take the opportunity to grow. Right. Or we're all highly skilled at finding fault and blame. And we actually <laughs> live in a larger culture where the media is focused on fault and blame. Yeah. Um, and so it's real easy. And then we get into triangulation. We get into us versus them. And that sort of energy just drains uh, the, the good work and the good effort in a culture. So in many ways, you are being a corporate organizational psychologist in the sense that you are helping them to be less dysfunctional. Well, yes. I mean, technically, I'm not diagnosing uh, and treating. And I mean, I'm informed by psychological principles and study, but I'm also informed by uh, mythology, by architects, uh, excuse me, archetypes. Um, and uh, there's a, a famous quote from the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung that I can only yeah. paraphrase, and that was, uh, read your books, listen to lectures, study the masters, and then set that all aside and open yourself up to the mystery of the human being who sits before you. Beautiful. And and speaking, um, just um, philosophizing here a moment, because uh, I mentioned that in your work uh, as a business uh, culture consultant, I think is the, mm -hmm. the term there, uh, you help organizations to develop better cultures that, uh, in between other things, allow this creative conflict and this art of supportive confrontations as one of the tools, of the many tools that you use with mm -hmm. them. But I presume that uh, this also, uh, uh, when you have uh, working an organization for a, uh, a while and you managing to make the magic happen, uh, in general, do you feel the happiness level increase in general there? Well, you know, that's a very interesting word. Uh, some people would say there's now a happiness industry. And I think that happy is is conditional. It's always conditional because um, if we're joyous for 72 straight hours, technically we call that mania. <laughs> and, and, and so I prefer to think about concepts like contentment mm -hmm. or uh, meaning and fulfillment, because every job that I've known of has some stress. And interestingly, we're very familiar with the word distress, which means negative stress, but we don't use the, the corresponding um, opposite. Um, and it uses the Greek prefix EU, like in euphoria, the technical term is eustress, which is positive stress. And if we don't have any positive stress, we're bored to tears. So balancing the distress and eustress, the negative and the positive, you know, that's a challenge that all of us have. Uh, then you throw in technology, uh, budgets, um, unexpected events that can occur at any moment. And, um, you know, uh, it makes it difficult to completely plan your day. So... Let me go back to the question with uh, switching one word, replacing the word happier with uh, well-being. So when you work in an organization for a while and you see really improvement in their culture, 
do you feel that the overall well-being of the people there increases? Yes, I mean that certainly is is the goal. Now it takes some time to identify and change the patterns within a culture because people use this word now. I mean, and and everybody thinks they know what it means. When when I started business culture consultants over 21 years ago, a lot of people would ask me, "What do you mean by business culture?" And now no one asks, but they're not always using the same definition. And the important thing is that it's the shared beliefs and assumptions and behaviors that people use as the correct way to perceive and react to things. So some of that is written down, some of that is talked about, but some of that is actually implicit and invisible. So you start a new job and you know within the first few weeks, someone says, oh, we don't do it like that here, or this is the way this is done. And if you ask them, well, why and how did that start? They may not be able to tell you. Just like we know that when we travel, uh, people have different beliefs and, and cultural norms around things like food and dress and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's getting at those deeper patterns and making them conscious. That takes a period of time, but it also takes an important quality from the leaders or owners of the business. And that's what I call appropriate professional vulnerability. You know, years ago, I had a business owner want me to come in and fix some some of his managers. He, you know, he had no interest in being involved in the project. So when the people in positions of power admit their own mistakes, are able to demonstrate, even in a clumsy way, their efforts to change and are open to feedback and and supportive confrontation, that sets the tone for everyone else. And when that happens, and uh, do you feel that the, the well-being in general increases or is a healthier culture? How you will define, what will be the word that you, dis- uh, that you will be better suited to describe the effects of the positive results? Well, it would be a sense of alignment and integration around both the beliefs and the behaviors. Alignment and integration. So they feel that the values that the, or the mission, the mission statement that the company says that they they stand for, they are walking the talk. Yeah, that there's congruency, integrity, authenticity. Because those are what we call employers of choice. People want to come to work for those businesses, and they don't want to leave once they're there, even though they might be able to make more money somewhere else. So uh, that is the best antidote to the great resignation that everybody's speaking about nowadays. Well, yes, because to me, the great resignation, uh, another way to, to name that is the search for meaning and fulfillment Absolutely. and a sense of connection with a deeper purpose. Absolutely. I think that is uh, what sometimes is so much forgotten that mainly in, in general in life and in our work life that we spend a significant amount of our day in our works and uh, it has to fulfill our purpose in somehow, even if it's to pay the bills, uh, but it has to have a meaning. Yeah, and I'm reminded of a of a lyric from a James Taylor song, and that is, the secret of life is enjoying the passage of time. And if you can do that at work, more or less, more often than not, most of us would be delighted with that, to enjoy the passage of time while at work. But unfortunately, 
millions of people around the globe, it is something that they have to do to provide for their families. And there's there's no enjoyment. So I think people are saying, I don't want to work. I'll find other means of financial support than working uh, for a business that there's no soul or spirit to it. So uh, there are al almost a gradient there. Uh, suffering, nobody likes to suffer. Uh, so, and there are works that is like the suffering, the eight hours or more that they are there, uh, enduring in a more positive way or even enjoying it. And then in the other side of the scale is like uh, they are living their purpose. Yeah, because that's why I don't really like the term work-life balance because, you know, your work should be full of life, but there are times when your life should be completely separate from work. I had the good fortune uh, a few weeks ago of spending seven days without voicemail, email, or looking at the news. And, you know, when we're able to really unplug and just follow the natural rhythm of life, it's remarkable how that you recharge your batteries by actually unplugging. And that takes us because I want to bring us or go a moment to the planet because uh, I know that you are, uh, your company is a B Corp. You work a lot with B corporations. Yes, is to make a profit, is for profit corporations. People is one of their best assets, and you are all about helping them to unlock their human potential. And the other um, element is taking care of the planet mm -hmm. and um, securing that there is a planet to live in in the future. Uh, so, and uh, it can be part of the solution for, uh, I think these things are, I think if we are creative, we can make more profits, taking better care of the people and securing a more healthier planet. Yes, and I think that just like we make investments in our retirement, we make investments in our homes, uh, we make investments in our education, we really need to think about making personal and business investments in our planet. You know, uh, I'm a strong supporter of 1% for the planet, where 1% of my annual sales goes to environmental causes. Um, I recently just purchased renewable natural gas made from, you know, the, uh, the cow manure here in Vermont and, and other sources so that I'm at least offsetting the natural gas that's, um, you know, has a significant imprint. And every time I fly, I buy my carbon offsets. So these are small things on one sense, but it's more that I, I want to have a continued consciousness around my impact. And I want to take every step that I can to reduce that impact. And it's almost, uh, I think, uh, investing in the planet, lie in the environment is like a, reti a retirement plan. It's good for us for the future. And nowadays that spe people speak so much about legacy. What is the legacy that they want to leave behind? Why not leave the legacy of a, a planet where people can live to our kids and grandkids? Yes, uh, David Brower, one of the founders of the Sierra Club, uh, he has a great quote. There's no business to be had on a dead planet. 
Absolutely true. So where people can learn more about you? Sure. Well, my website is my business name, businesscultureconsultants.com. I'm on LinkedIn, happy to connect there. And if you really would like to follow up on a personal level, I would be happy to receive an email from the listeners of this podcast at flip, F-L-I-P, Dot brown at icloud.com. And in March, I'm launching a professional development community based on the Mighty Networks platform that's going to take the core elements of what we've been talking about today and my book and create an interactive online community. Wow. So that'll be happening uh, real soon. Yes. And I will make sure that put all these links in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. This was a rich conversation that hopefully will seed many creative ideas for everybody listening. Well, thanks, Anna. You uh, ask great questions, and I can tell your values are aligned with um, our discussion today, and yeah. that, that makes me feel good. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Expanding possibilities, the mindset zone. Thank you for listening, and remember to visit mindset.zone. Yes, instead of .com, it's .zone. There you can find all the episodes and other amazing resources, all at mindset.zone. As always, I'm so grateful you are here. Expand what's possible for you, for the ones around you, for the world.